0: Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, President of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to FraserForum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is Danielle at FraserForum.org. We'd love
1: to hear from you. In my study of indigenous entrepreneurs, one of the things that that set them apart from other other entrepreneurs I noticed was that they, um, as individuals they they tended to find ways to improve their community like they, they had individual initiatives like they would start a business that would tap into something on the, some kind of need like any entrepreneur but they were always focusing on you know how am i going to improve how am i going to lift up people in my own community which you don't always see in every community it's just recognizing you know that the market economy um what can work for first nations just like it can work for any any other community <music> acknowledge that you know there are certain things that you know notions that 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 they had back then that you know they were that you know this continent was empty that they didn't have people that they didn't have necessarily advanced societies i think you know if we can uh, realize that those were wrong but at the same time you know you have that um the the presence of of non-indigenous people that you know uh, and to i guess to paraphrase uh, a supreme court judge I can't remember exactly who it was you said like you know we're all here to stay we gotta make do with that and we have uh, you know when we have a constitution that uh, unlike a lot of other constitutions uh, in the industrialized world actually recognizes aboriginal treaty rights you look at the United States doesn't have that per se uh, Australia mm-hmm. New Zealand uh, you look at these other countries so that, those are some things that are good I think the one of the the other thing that was was obviously not a good thing was just uh, believing that uh, you know, at one point you know our societies were better, and that First Nations need to change things about themselves in order to fit a certain fit a certain standards. You look at the residential school experience and those kinds of things. Those things um, obviously uh, need to be acknowledged. But what I say, and a lot of also Indigenous authors like Kelvin Helene and British Columbia, uh, the Simpson people said that what one of the worst things that happened uh, for First Nations was the creation of dependency on the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the fiduciary relationship that kind of really treated First Nation people like children, wards of the state, that at the t- at the beginning, there was a good intention of protecting Indigenous lands and peoples and uh, from from settlers that are coming in and like not dealing with them. So at one point, say in the 19th century, it made sense. But you look at it now, you know, you have First Nations that, that want to do things, you know, they want to run businesses, they want to control their lives, they want to control government programs on their communities. Um, but they're still dealing with 19th century institutions. You still have the Indian Act. So, mm-hmm. but the creation of independence, you know, uh, uh, you have that in the 50s and 60s um, with the loss of certain traditional industries, uh, the dependency on social assistance that became very uh, problematic over over time. And that, that needs to be definitely, you know, pointed out
0: can you can you put the treaty discussion into context it's interesting to me it's interesting to me constitutional protection for treaties that you see is is not in existence in some other places does the the fact that we have so much of canada under treaty that that almost creates the impression that there there was a respect leader to leader relationship when those treaties were being signed there was a recognition that there had to be some kind of truce or alliance or recognition of the rights of those who were here. Um, that's how, how do you see it? Because not every place has treaties in Canada, which I've, I've often wondered why it is that BC has so many overlapping claims and they didn't resolve that, considering it was one of the, the earliest places to be settled and yet throughout the prairies and into uh, eastern Canada there is. Can, can you put some, put some of that into context for us?
1: If you it definitely the kind of the imperatives of settling the country, uh, first uh, first Nations had to be dealt with, the government, especially as it as it started settling, it proceeded uh, west. So you had the, the number of treaties at at one point, um, militarily, when you had uh, the um, first nations uh, could could easily have been subjected. But then, as you get on, um you know that wasn't the case so you look at like the crown had to deal with the the situation that it had at the time but i always look at it that um you know if first nations uh uh could could do those treaties now like you do have modern treaties in different places if they had all the lawyers that they had and researchers that i don't think that you know giving up subsurface rights uh you know giving giving away certain pieces of land in exchange for uh, you know a medicine chest that's kind of the language for traps for trap lines uh for things like that 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 they wouldn't be uh, that they wouldn't be done but you do look at it that uh, I, f- I consider it that it is a, m- a mark of pride and in, in canadian history that uh you know the, the british government and the canadian government felt that you know it would de- deal with first nations as peoples so first nations have always wanted to maintain some kind of collectivity about their existence that you know they did respect that, and you have other places where that definitely was not the case.
0: I think there's a sense that the that the uh, those who 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 settled took advantage in writing those treaties. and i I wonder if if it's perceived that way today, if you look back on history, because there was so much territory here, and it was so lightly populated. In some ways, the creation of value of land and minerals and resources that, that has happened over time. Um, it it wasn't obvious, I don't think, when when we first when we first started seeing settlement that the, the value of the land would grow to what it is today. And I'm so I'm trying to put it into my in my own mind. Was there was there genuine respect in the way those treaties were written? And we should look at them as a moment in time, or or were they written in a way to take advantage?
1: I think there, there definitely was some like sharp dealing with these uh, at the time. I think that uh, uh, First Nations didn't necessarily uh, know um, what the government knew. There was one thing that without travel, without mass travel, obviously with communication, that uh, you would have one uh, treaty area that would not be aware of how what was being offered in another one, and you do have some examples where. Uh, actually, in some of the, I've studied some of the proceedings that where you see, you know you'll see one first Nation uh, leader or community would say, "Well, we know that you gave this to this other treaty area, so they would get that. And they would want to uh, demand that, right? Like you have um, uh, there's like one treaty treaty eight is the only one that mentions a tax exemption. The rest of them uh, don't. They didn't necessarily see that mm-hmm. at, at the time. And I think, yeah, definitely, they didn't see, though, things like uh, obviously resource development, a lot of the mining that happened. Unfortunately, right? They didn't see that. And now you kind of have it like First Nations now are looking back and saying, well, we didn't know this. Um, we were, you know, we didn't have the knowledge, the, inter- the communication that we'd like some of those things. We'd like to be able to access those things now, which I think is, f- is fair, like f- for them, uh, you know, and that's what's happening. right?
0: Right. All right. So let's then talk a bit. I think it's important to understand that context because um, we, we have to look at, at over time, the aspirations of cultures change and the aspirations of individuals change. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what sort of the essential elements of indigenous culture are, because there's always this tension of does Western culture force assimilation is by participating in the modern economy. Is that somehow um, uh, offending uh, the, the the sense of indigenous rights that should be enshrined in those treaties? And, and I want to talk that through a bit, because I guess the way I've always looked at it is every single one of us, no matter what our cultural heritage, at some point, we can trace back to an ancestor who used to also hunt and fish and gather. And yet cultures, go through different stages of economic development and they still maintain their culture and so i don't think that having modern involvement in a modern economy is necessarily assimilation but again maybe i'm looking at that from a western perspective i'm trying to still sort of sort through how i should be looking at these things and 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 so i, I want to try to seek your your guidance a bit on that but but let's talk about what the original treaties were meant to enshrine? Because you mentioned the medicine chest, but they also do mention hunting and fishing and, and gathering rights.
1: I think, like, they wanted, they were looking at the, um, the the modern means that they had at the time to survive. Like, say, like, in the prairies, you had the bison herds were disappearing. You had those things that First Nations at the time uh, wanted to protect those things into perpetuity. Uh, another thing that, uh, you know, and this is something that's not a proud part of Canadian history, is that you know, you had a lot of those First Nation communities on the prairies that were not doing well uh, because of the bison herds. And so the federal government kind of using that to kind of, uh, you know, kind of impose treaty to make sure that they signed a hmm. uh, treaty. So, but so they wouldn't sort of starve, right? But they, I think, um, you look at Canadian history over time, um, the first, the, um, this is another issue that I thought was interesting in the 19th century and beyond the, um, the, the government really wanted to, especially in the prairies, wanted to, in Alberta, wanted to encourage First Nations to get into agriculture, and uh, tried to get them into that. But what had happened was you started seeing a lot of uh, the Eastern European uh, settlers that, I would, that come at later, and the government. Um, uh, this is there's a book on this. I'm trying. It's called From Plowshares uh, to Welfare, where looking at that it was actually the federal government found it cheaper uh, to um, to bring in people from Eastern Europe to come into farm because the Ukraine and different places, cause they already knew how to farm. They were very good at farming rather than kind of, um, force first nations mm. to engage in farmers. So it's what, it was a top down thing though at the same time. Uh, so then from there, so, uh, you know, and then your first nations and being involved in the, uh, the wage economy, working at different factories and different things in BC that they tried to, uh, encourage, but they always had the, they, like the, the right to hunt and fish as kind of supplemental, but now you look at it in order to engage in a modern lifestyle with the things that you, th- those things can't sustain. You need, first, you know, First Nations populations now are involved in all kinds of things. You have, even like, when, there's some First Nations that have like, you know, insurance companies, they have like, uh, you know, financial services that are offered in some, they're, they're getting involved. Online businesses have done profiles on Indigenous entrepreneurs that are very encouraging. So you look at, so I think, you know, um, the, the culture is changing just like any, um, one, a big issue, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the language loss, but you look at, you know, uh, you can't stop that. You know, you can't force people to speak a language. Um, you know, the residential schools experience definitely had a role in that for this, this, the last generation and this one, but you can't just look at it that way. You know, first nations are trying to preserve their language uh, and you see, um, um, and uh, you know, there's intermarriage on First Nations. you know, you have some communities that are concerned about the, just the viability of communities. because under the Indian Act, if you outmarry, what is it, two grandparents uh, are non-indigenous, then you lose your status. So you have some communities. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like um, so you know some uh, you know we don't like talking about blood, quantum, and percentage of blood. It's kind of uncomfortable in the 21st century, but in First Nations, the Indian Act, it talks. It's, huh. it's about that it's about blood quantum how much indigenous blood but it's because you have certain resources on a first nation so that there's a you know scarcity of resources that th- they're concerned about you know who's ac- accessing that but but you're very right that you know you have rights like hunting and trapping you have a lot of urban first nation people uh, metis especially are very heavily urbanized a lot of them can, don't take advantage of that and it becomes almost like it's a right that's there but it's not it's being fought over but it's not actually exercised as much right
0: and it is almost i guess maybe this is my discomfort talking about it is that it in its own way it seems patronizing to to suggest to, or think that the majority of indigenous peoples want to continue living a hunting trapping and and gathering lifestyle when, especially in Alberta, the majority of business leaders that I meet in the indigenous community today, they've got major multi-billion dollar deals that they're negotiating to purchase pipelines and tank farms and establish oil field service companies and work in the forestry sector. And so this is like, I think, sort of the push and pull that we have here. We created a system in the, nine, in the 19th century to sort of, trap indigenous culture at a moment in time and we're kind of <laughs> transitioning to a modern economy, but we're trying to to we're trying to find the language to deal with both. I, I don't know that the treaties really were up to the job of being able to manage that transition and so it becomes really complicated to figure out what if we were to go forward a hundred years aspirationally, what will some of these um, indigenous communities look like and that's that's sort of what I'm trying to understand is. We're, how do we get to where we want to be from where we are now? We're, we're sort of stuck in transition. Do, am I, am I, does that, does that resonate with you? Does that seem that same? Language? Yeah, yeah,
1: very much. Like, I think, you know, you have, um, you know, you have 21st century realities dealing with 19th century institutions and tools that, uh, first nations are the ones who are asking for that. Um, I think, you know, insofar as they can, they want to maintain their identities, their languages their cultures and those kinds of things while at the same time take part in the institutions. Like I think um, like um, it's uh, to me it's not so much like the treaties is a c- can be a convenient tool to continue into the future just by recognizing you know who's who, what's what, but it's more like the the Indian Act itself as kind of a paternalistic and very patronizing legislation. Um, although you know at least you know it sets aside land for First Nation people so it creates the reserve system. so that's okay in the sense of just creating a land base, but the way that it, uh, you know, it subjects everything to oversight, ministerial approval for everything. And then for one of the big things, and I've written about, you know, control over land, land title held in and you know, by the crown instead of the First Nation people, that's a, that is a, obviously a, an issue that has been going on um, that First Nations now realizing that especially entrepreneurs and those who want to get into the economy realizing that they have very limited access to capital uh, they can't things that canadians take for granted you know being able to put up your house or put up something um as collateral for a loan first nations can't do that they have to uh for houses uh, oftentimes you have the the minister of indigenous affairs uh, through the band will kind of uh will provide a guarantee guarantee for for mortgage loans so that the ban becomes accountable for that, that creates its own set of problems. So you have an issue of like Mm -hmm. modern tools like private property or those kinds of things. But um, the closest we got in Canada in 2011, uh, the the, the previous Conservative government talked about introducing a Property Rights Act Mm -hmm. to transfer title from the Crown to willing voluntary First Nations that they could acquire title to their own land the reversionary title so that they they, they could uh, they and then the, the community can parcel it out to individuals or the community could uh, expropriate like a normal government does um in that respect uh so but it didn't go very far uh the afn uh passed a resolution opposing it mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, what, what there's the, definitely the experience of dispossession convinced, you know, very much, you know, caused a problem. People looking at that, they saw the example of the, in the United States uh, in the 19th century, the, the, the Dawes Act, the allotment, where, where this is more of a top-down, where the Congress came in. The, these are the progressives at the time. The reformers came down and kind of decided that they were going to uh, forcefully kind of divide up land in, on re- reservations, Indian reservations. And as a result... You see a lot of loss of land in the united states and so when this issue was coming up you had a lot of people in canada looking at this saying this is a dawes act style Hmm. land reform when it wasn't anything like that like the land would have been protected it would have gone to the first nation that's not the case in the united states in the 19th century so you have a lot of that so there's kind of the that people were worried uh, about that
0: that helps explain a lot actually about the opposition because because the way i look at it now especially with some of the modern technologies we have and the modern tools that we have in in the past being in a a rural remote community with a small population it's hard to service that but if you can build broadband all to the entire network of of nations then the sky's the limit for um how how, what what kind of uh, access to the economy and what kind of jobs would be available? So I feel like we're on the cusp of finally being able to make the rural and remote communities work if we can get the proper infrastructure yeah. to them. But talk to, but 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 let's talk a bit about the Indian Act because I remember when Jody Wilson-Raybould part of the break that she had. Um, with the, with the, with the uh, Prime Minister was that, I think he wanted to make her um, Indigenous Affairs Minister. And she just thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to enforce the Indian Act. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's very confusing about why the Indian Act still exists. First of all, I hate the name because it's inappropriate and we've, we've moved on from the language, we use the word indigenous yeah. now and it seems odd that we would still have this archaic term to, to, mm-hmm. to this particular piece of legislation. But then there's also some members of the indigenous communities who say, we shouldn't have it at all. And then there are others who, as you described, say, well, this is what creates the reserve system. So talk to me about what needs to happen from a legislative point of view, because I, I, I guess the way I look at it is that I've seen, we've got indigenous communities in Alberta where they um, they rent out the land to non-indigenous people and have created communities. Redwood Meadows yeah. is one of the ones that comes to mind, it's Sutina, And so I can see how you'd still have the authority for the territory maintained by the band with revenues going to the band and they create a property-like structure but they don't lose anything. They just end up creating some productive value and end up attracting more revenue. So it seems like there's models that work, but but maybe put it all into context for me so I understand the kind of the ambivalence that there is towards the Indian Act.
1: Like there there are, in 1988, uh, actually Manny Jules, who's the uh, chief commissioner of the First Nation, uh, the, the First Nation Tax Commission, who was a chief in BC at the time, he led uh, the first—they call it the first First Nation, First Nation-led amendment to the Indian Act, where he, where they allowed land to be designated uh, for certain industrial developments. So basically, it allowed those things uh, that they could be kind of uh, temporarily surrendered for those purposes, uh, for purposes of economic development. So that's where you see these language of like 99-year leases that they. So you know they're not giving up the land indefinitely. There's a definite limit to it. but You start to see situations where, you know, conflict with cottagers. Uh, but this is this was uh, one way that, uh, the, yeah, like you said, it's, it's a tool. It's an imperfect tool, but it's a tool that a First Nation um, can still they can still maintain the reserve system in the sense of preserving that land. It can't be lost, but they can get economic value from it. Like there's also uh, in 1999 under the um, the Liberal government at the time the uh, They passed something called the First Nation Land Management Act, which, uh, it's an, it's a really, it's a very successful story that you don't hear as much. Uh, I wish you heard a little bit more. So it allowed, it allows First Nations to opt out of the Indian Act that have to do with land management so that a First Nation can adopt its own land code, but it still remains, um, it's still, it still remains, uh, reserve land. Now the, um. The, the only, the only uh, problem is that um, because it's not a, it's not, f- f- you know, full fee, free, uh, fee, simple property rights, it's not as valuable as it could be. Hmm. So, but you have like hundreds of first nations right now that are able to opt out of the Indian Act uh, for, in terms of land management and they, they do better. You know, they've done, they've done studies. KPMG has done studies saying that those first nations tend to do better than those who don't have that. So that's something. So like you, we were talked about the Indian act, like there are many ways that first nations like on issues like elections on issues, like, uh, membership, they can already opt out of the Indian act. It's almost to the point where there are some first nations that they've already opted out of so many provisions of the Indian act that it's, there's not much left, but I think, um, for First Nations, like it's one recognition still of some kind of collective mm. rights. You look at, say, back to the, the White Paper of 1969, um, there wasn't, they, they weren't disagreeing with the getting rid of the Indian Act. It was brought up, but they were talking about, well, what's your alternative? And how will your alternative uh, protect Indian rights? And that was the language that they still used. Because that's the language that, uh, you know, status Indians. So they wanted to keep their rights, which some of them were enshrined within the Indian Act. But they wanted to find a way that, you know, they could get away from the the oversight of always having to approve everything through uh, the federal government, uh, you know, and then it, it, it just becomes silly.
0: So it's, it sounds like what you're saying then is, and maybe it's just an evolution, is that with enough passage of time each nation is going to develop a comfort level with developing its own provisions under the land management act and its own oversight and ultimately the indian act is not going to apply to very many nations and uh, do you have some sense though of of how many nations have opted for that full self-government versus how many are still under the provisions of the indian act
1: it just it would depend on um it would depend on um What provisions that they're exempt from, like just an example, like um, the majority of First Nations in Canada, all across Canada, follow their own, they're called custom election systems. So they've opted out of the Indian Act has its own election provisions, which involve a lot of oversight from the minister. They've they've opted out of those. So you have most people on those issues. Now, um, so it... This is where it gets interesting, is I think that you know you have um, uh, if you have you have many you know First Nations that are it's universally reviled. People looking at the Indian Act saying, it, you know, it's kind of you know the, the you're always hitting uh, you know it's one of those things that you know it, it's not doesn't doesn't take much for First Nation leader to criticize the Indian Act and rightfully so, but in terms of actually coming up with a, a plan as you know a very detailed uh, a timeline or plan for saying let's get out of the Indian Act. That's harder to say uh, to mm-hmm. actually come up with something. Um, I, I think you know the the solution is just to continue on that and then like devolved devolved governance and service agreements with First Nations. I think if First Nations could eventually manage their own lands, I think that that would be a, a good thing. And then maybe at some point, you know you see First Nations um, the federal government not being responsible. For First Nation lands, like they are now in the in the Constitution, section ninety one twenty four, it, it Indians and the lands reserved for Indians are under the federal government. You think of that a uh, people, you know. But in a sense, it's been good in the sense the First Nations because it's protected the, the the sense of collectivity. But at the same time, it created that kind of ward like paternalism that First Nations don't want and Canada looking in 2021 doesn't want. That's what I was saying. Like, you know, when the First Nations have to sign off on everything, you know, they have to, you know, even their bylaws, like uh, the, um, the bank council resolutions, they have to send them to the federal government that becomes silly. That's what I was referring to before that it just becomes so onerous. And so that, you know, anyone looking at that would say, well, this, this has got to go, you know, this kind of a system
0: completely. Let me ask you, because I know you've written on this about the First Nations Financial Transparency Act. And you might have to give us a bit of an update, because I think you were writing about this in 2016. That there, there was pushback on some of the things that we kind of look at as being fairly basic to being accountable to your own people. And that's, that to me is what self governance is all about is that the leadership becomes accountable for the people who vote for them. And knowing what a chief and council are getting paid and knowing what their expenses are, and being able to access that information that doesn't seem like an onerous provision and yet uh when carolyn bennett was the uh, was the minister it was one of those provisions that was lifted because there was so much well there was some pushback i think you pointed out it was uh 338 that were in non-compliance with the act Mm
1: -hmm.
0: what am i what am i missing there like what is what was that dispute really all about and was it unreasonable for uh for, for the for the minister to make that move
1: I don't think it was. If you look at, you know, you had at the time, like 97, 98% compliance. Uh, One of the things that you notice is that, and just because like, uh, over the years since about 2006, I've been working in what they call Indian country, like working out, talking to people is that that kind of basic transparency was what grassroots average first nations were asking for. And what you noticed, was that within some of the... See, the thing is, is that, you know, I think the average salary was actually like 60,000. It wasn't exorbitant, but there were some First Nations that were like, you know, upwards in the six figures, you know, First Nations that were responsible for small communities. The chief was getting like 200 up to like, you know, $500,000 for small communities. And they started comparing that with premiers and with the Mm -hmm. prime minister. And they were just looking at that and they were saying, uh, but at the time, you know, you had a lot of First Nations on the reserves were the ones who were saying, you know, well, this is good. We we want this kind of basic transparency, and they appreciate it. And so you see that some of the most exorbitant cases, they, you know, the chiefs, um, you know, they reduced their salaries once the spotlight. So you think some of it, so there was some malfeasance. There were some people that were kind of hiding behind the lack of transparency. And I think a lot of people on First Nations, the average people, uh, we're supporting that. That's why I think there wasn't as much of a pushback. But what happened is that you have sometimes, sometimes the leaders, they try to they try to wrap themselves in the mantle of kind of self-government rhetoric, as a way to kind of uh, mm. avoid the spotlight by saying, "Well, this is our sovereign rights and all this." You know, to the point where um, you know some First Nations that were that were that were saying that they would uh, not comply. Um, the I think you know the government. Uh, it did provide that if a community wasn't compliant, uh, it would, um, there was a penalty at some point. uh, That was not very uh, often applied. Most First Nations, like I said, it was like 97. And then, so to me, it didn't make sense, except, and I'll look at this as, uh, you know, the, at the time, the liberal government uh, in that particular government was very close to the FN that was Mm. kind of opposing this. And some of the chiefs against their own people, which I think was tragic decided to say, well, we're not going to enforce it. And then you started seeing some communities, but not a lot. I think to their credit, the First Nations, uh, they've come normalized to that. Like First Nations are public governments. They're, you know, I look at it that, you know, um, whether or not you want to say, okay, it's taxpayer money, like the Taxpayers Federation got very involved in that. But just looking at it, that this is money that is held in trust by a government for the First Nation people, if it's not spending it properly, then they have to do something about that. And um, you know, and the other thing, just like I'll just leave on one thing. In this, to me, that one of the greatest benefits of the First Nation Financial Transparency Act that I thought was great, especially for research purposes, was showing uh, how many First Nations uh, were no longer dependent on government revenues. Mm-hmm. That there are so many, it, it revealed over about a hundred communities that were doing almost self-sufficient, and some were self-sufficient. So I think that is a, a good thing, and it, the, it was only th- that act that expose that. Once the audited financial statements came out, we could look at it and say, okay, wow, you know, you're, you're doing well. And let's, how do we encourage that? So that's, you know, it, so it's a, it's a good act. And I hope that, you know, I wish the government would not, uh, would, you know, remove the, that not, not, not enforcing it.
0: That's, I think that's such great perspective too, because we're, we're in a transition in time and it, it's going to be amazing when someone does an interview like this a hundred years from now to see, how many more First Nations are self-sufficient? Because, I, I think that that ought to be the goal. But again, mm-hmm. I don't want to impose my own view on, on what a community ought to do. But is that what is that the aspiration? Do you think of most First Nations leaders? Do they want to find avenues towards being self-sufficient?
1: I think, I think a lot of them do. I think they look at it. They start to realize that. Um, Political self-government is one thing, but economic, it's actually in many ways is more meaningful that when you're able to call the shots uh, in that way, i you think of it that um, you look at most governments in Canada, to a certain extent, have uh, intergovernmental transfers. So I think, you know, we shouldn't just say, okay, First Nations have to all, all be 100% self-sufficient because mainstream communities aren't like that. But I think as much as possible, they should be looking at that and saying, um, you know, some First Nations have been resistant to that, like kind of clawback provisions that try to, when they become independent, they want to keep some of the things, but that's, you can't have your cake and eat it too in that respect, but you, you they, you know, oh, I lost you, Danielle, uh, you, the uh, Let the me try voice. that again. Yeah, okay. Maybe, right. maybe,
0: maybe it's, uh, I should use different language. Maybe it's a matter of the extent to which a nation has own source revenue, because you're quite right. It would be unreasonable. We Every single community, any municipality that's not indigenous, there's transfers for infrastructure and there's uh, Mm. subsidized schooling and there's obviously subsidized health care and nursing home care. So you'd want to make sure that there's parity on all of those issues. But it's really the extent to which a nation is able to develop its own source revenue. that I I think and and aspirationally, do you think most communities want to do that? Uh,
1: I, I think so. I think it's becoming more and more, uh, you have a younger population. They've been exposed to the cities. They've, they've come back, they've seen, uh, businesses, mainstream businesses, how they run, they come back and they want to start something. And, uh, yeah, and you see this whole, a new generation of, uh, of entrepreneurs that want to take and communities that want to have own source revenue, uh, for themselves. I think that should be maximized to the greatest extent possible. And I think that is the, that's the new front, you know, um, to me, like, uh, you're looking forward. Uh, Most uh, First Nations live close to or on, um, you know, their their traditional territories are near resource natural resources. I think that's still going to be the future for First Nations that want to be able to live in certain those kind of areas, like mining, forestry, oil and gas, uh, other things like you said, also to the internet, those kinds of online businesses are great too. But those kind of things, we got to see more of those.
0: Talk to me a bit about, uh, I, one of your columns I read had a an, uh, a quote from Milton Friedman. And I, I think we need to explore this a bit because maybe it's not immediately obvious because of the way our indigenous communities have developed. But the quote you had was, free markets solve many problems that confound bureaucracies. And I, I, I believe in some ways there's this sense that central planners can just manage their way through every problem. And there's a reluctance to embrace free enterprise and free markets in, in some communities. You talk about some of the reason why that might be, but we, we have to talk about foundational principles and what it is that creates wealth and what creates own source revenue. And you've alluded that to that a little bit, but, but talk to me about why it is that you think free markets are able to solve many problems that confound bureaucracies. Why do free markets work?
1: Well, just in terms of, you know, um, you know, w- where resources are going to be allocated the most efficiently and the most, you know, kind of wonky talk, but uh, saying that, um, you know, g- government, you know, governments uh, don't have the best track record for picking the winners and losers. They want to come in. It's like the the worst thing that I le- that I that I that don't want to hear when I'm talking because I work in indigenous economic development is like government led economic development right because it's like what does that mean what are you trying to do here uh you know um so that's usually a problem that these you know it's you look at some of the experience with crown corporations so i think you know for, for first nations you know um one thing you know that i've always stressed you look at you know first nations are obviously not like any they're 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 like any other community uh where you look at it in the world where you know i'm 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 pretty hopeful that we look at that the idea that, you know, markets are the best way uh, to improve, uh, you know, to increase human flourishing, all that, uh, that that applies to First Nation people. Like, that's why I look at it and saying, well, why would you say, why would you think that collective ownership of things would be good for First Nations people when it's never been proven to work for any other community? Why? What's so special um, that you, you you do? And this is also, we talked about this a little bit with the cultural argument saying that well first nations you know we've always been a collective oriented people we can't do this and that well i think you can honor some of the collective parts of the first nation culture like any of them um while at the same time kind of trying to adapt to the to the imperatives of the the economy the modern economy because you see it now you see like indigenous entrepreneurs like you know you have first nations that that own their own homes and cities you know is it are we going to say that they're they stopped being indigenous once they owned a home? Mm-hmm. are we are we going to say once they started getting? usually, you know, in my study of indigenous entrepreneurs, one of the first thing one of the things that that set them apart from other other entrepreneurs I noticed was that they um, uh, as individuals, they they tended to find ways to improve their community. like they they had individual initiatives, like they would start a business that would tap into something on some kind of need like any entrepreneur, but they were always focusing on, you know, how am I gonna improve? How am I gonna lift up people in my own community? Which you don't always see in every community. So I think that's a way that, you know, it's an adaptation that uh, recognizes that, right? Um, So yeah, like um, it's just recognizing, you know, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the market economy, um what can work for first nations just like it can work for any any other community
0: talk to me about access to capital because you've identified that as being one of the big issues and i sort of think through my own access to capital issues when i'm when i was trying to access uh borrowing for a restaurant that i started and you've got to be able to put up collateral and the the banks like to see that you own your building or own your property and there has to be some sort of forfeiture that happens if you don't pay your debt, and it is also the case that business loans have a much higher percentage than personal home ownership loans. And so when I when I look at some of the challenges that small businesses face in a, a non-indigenous environment, it just the, the the layers of complexities just must get that much more difficult when when you're on a, uh, a reserve and you don't have secure property rights and you can't put it up for collateral. I mean, is there are there financing arrangements that are developing to work around those issues or are you finding with the First Nations entrepreneurs that you've met, sadly, they have to go off reserve in order to be able to build their business, which kind of defeats the purpose of local economic development. How, how do you see it well, unfolding?
1: Well, they have um, like they do have they have many They have federal programs. They have ministerial guarantees. Um, Another way that they've tried to go around this, uh, the First Nation Finance Authority and the First Nation Financial Management Board, uh, they they allow First Nations uh, to, and they they usually have to be First Nations that have a good economic, they have good financial controls, they have a good track record of maintaining uh, all these ratios, you know. So they, they do, they look at the finances of these First Nations. And so what they do is that community that's doing well, um, they allow the first nation to kind of collateralize revenue streams. So it's Mm -hmm. not property, but it's revenue stream, future revenue streams, like, you know, casino money, uh, even cannabis, right? Like legal cannabis sales that they use. um, And, you know, for for different things that any type of oil and gas, any type of, you know, like a, um, some kind of trust fund that the first nation gets from a settlement, they allow them to collateralize to put those up instead of property so that the First Nation can obtain a loan at a good rate, good rate of interest. Mm-hmm. So that's the First Nation Finance Authority. That that's one tool that they use to try to get around that. Um, some First Nations would like to be able to collateralize their federal transfers, but so far that hasn't happened. The government has been reluctant to do that. So there's different ways that they've been trying to, they try to get around this, the elephant in the room of the property or lack of property rights. Um, I think for me, I think, you know, that uh, these things are better tools than not tools. They are, they're imperfect, but, but they're good. Um, I think that First Nations should make themselves, avail them as much as they can. I do think that, uh, you know, the First Nation property rights debate that'll come up uh, again at some point, um, uh, I am skeptical that this particular government uh, would raise it. I uh, would have to see maybe a future government, uh, whatever stripe, that would be good. Because I really, what I really, you know, w- want to stress is like this doesn't have to be a partisan issue. You know, like uh, this is, you know, um, First Nations having the moder- uh, modern economic tools for the 21st century. That's not something that we should be divided about uh, by stripe. This is something that everyone should want. And there's ways that we could try to make sure that we protect, the, you know, the Indigenous land base at the same time while allowing First Nations to have capital and assets that they could use. Like um, in 2010, like the Nishka Nation in British Columbia uh, was the first First Nation that adopted, you know, a complete free simple title for average First Nations on the reserve. Uh, The government received title through the self-government agreement and gave it to the individuals. So starting in 2013, they have access to uh, land. Like we're talking small one hectare lots like their home and their property. And so far, you know, there hasn't been, I was looking into this, there hasn't been any foreclosures, first nations, mainly for small businesses. You know, you want to start a lodge or something like that, that, you know, it's one of the unsung stories so far that this has been happening and, um, not a lot of people know about it, uh, that, you know, It's So hopefully, you know, that over time, these tools will become more available to all. And I'm glad to
0: hear you say that because that's what I've observed with a lot of First Nations businesses is that they are owned by the nation as a whole. So they're almost like the equivalent of crown corporations. And... Uh, when you look at how free enterprise works, we've got a lot of businesses that are owned by an individual. So Mm -hmm. can you set up an individual Tim Hortons franchise on reserve owned by an individual First Nations member, or does it all have to be owned by the band? And maybe this is where we've got a culture clash is, is there an embrace of individual property rights, or is it more of a collective property rights and the kind of Economic model that we're going to see on First Nations is really more going to be band-led as opposed to individual-led. What, what do you think?
1: I think there definitely should be more individual. They should be, but I think for the foreseeable future, there definitely will be uh, band-led. Like they're usually called development corporations that are led by the band, and I think that um, you know that's a, that's a model that First Nations many times do like, and I think that to me, as long as the proceeds and all that is shared among everyone, and that there's no problems with that, then you know that's something that's good. I think I've been. That's one thing that if you've ever been out on reserves, you've been on different. You know, I've been many of the communities. Uh, that's the first thing that you'll notice is that you know there might be like maybe one store. I remember one reserve way up north in northern Alberta, like north of Fort McMurray. There was a. I remember there was like a, a small restaurant but it was owned by someone of Chinese background. Like they'd come from somewhere else to start it. I don't know if that was actually like a, a, some kind of designation they allowed them to, but it was, so depending on what the band does, like they do have small little micro enterprises. I'd just, you'd like to see more things, right? And just you'd like to see now open up so much that, you know, First Nation can see the need just like anyone else and say, well, you know what? We can handle that. Um, like there was a company in Manitoba that I know a gentleman that, uh, he had worked for our think tank. He's an Aboriginal an guy. And he had started a, he had started making their own uh, personal protective equipment during the height of the pandemic, because there was an issue of first nations getting access to proper mm-hmm. PPE in a timely way. So he said, I'm going to set up a business, indigenous owned business, where I'm going to provide PPE to bands, get them there quickly. And he made an, uh, you know, venture out of that. And I'm very happy that, you know, so it's things like that, seeing, you know, where the needs are, you know,
0: that's going to be amazing to see that develop, you know, the way you've described that too, cause that has been raised to me before about how we may have to look um, through a different lens at the compensation for council members because of that intermingling. Um, so when you are, I mean, if if Justin Trudeau was also the head of Canada post, we might compensate him differently. And that's kind of the the intermingling that we see on a lot of First Nations, that those who are taking leadership in political environment are also the ones who are leading the First Nations corporations. And so I would just, put that yeah. out there. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but it it ha- does go some some of the way towards explaining why a First Nations leader might have a higher level of compensation than the size of the community would warrant. But if they are doing, as I mentioned, multi-billion dollar deals, and they're overseeing that, yeah. they're part of that corporate board of directors, I wonder if we just have to also look at a different way of assessing what, what appropriate pay would be.
1: Yeah, actually this created a situation back when the first nation financial act was being discussed was that a lot of them wanted to be exempt certain parts of salaries that had to do with ban run ventures and there's an issue of confidentiality of you know com- competitive they didn't want their compensation all these things to be revealed so i think there was some some valid things with that uh, the other thing that some first nation chiefs said was well uh, reserves um they're kind of a mix of they have municipal and provincial and federal powers, right? Like they control education, they control the healthcare care authority, and they distribute this and they control the land. So it's like, so there can be an argument made, I guess, that they have a little bit more. But when you, some of them, like with the comparable size, like uh, you had sometimes First Nations that learning for the first time that their chief was making or their counselors were making, said, you know what, we should make this a little bit more comparable to other, you know, um, you know, other places, at least maybe within, within First Nations, you know, yes. comparing, you know, what's, what makes sense uh, between First Nations. Um,
0: but having that transparency, I think is, we could we could all at least, at least agree. And then nations would be able, or the residents of nations would be able to hold their own leaders accountable if there's something that seems out of step. Yeah. Got it. Let me ask you before I leave this issue about the um, uh, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm saying the name wrong, the member two First Nation in Cape Breton, which is quite interesting because we're talking about different models for how nations can and reserves can be set up. And this is a nation that does not have reserve status. It um, operates on the free market. And one of the things that you you talked about is if we're going to truly allow nations to be self-determining and have choice, then maybe this model that we've kind of imposed of tax exempt status on reserves, may, maybe there's a different way of doing it. Maybe you actually would unlock more productivity if you allowed for nations to choose a different model. So, t- so tell us what, what the Member Two First Nation is structured by so that we can understand some of the history there. <laughs>
1: Well, they're like they're still a like they're they're a reserve. They're a First Nation. Um, if you've been there, uh, a lot of the it's a very very urbanized. It's right in they're right in the middle of Sydney. I kind of compare it to Satina in Calgary. Okay, like it's very close to it's almost indistinguishable. They have a hotel there, and um, so this uh, what was different about them was uh, they had made a decision at some point that some of their reserve lands. Um, different lands that they'd acquired, um, rather than convert them to reserve status, they decided they were going to keep them as fee simple lands, owned outright by the band, uh, so they they wouldn't get that because they wanted to maximize the value that they could mm. could get for them. Because there's uh, you know Manny Jules always said said that if there's one sure way to reduce value of land is convert it to a reserve. Because it immediately limits what you can do with it. It's transferability. It's just, it's economic value. You can think of it that it's, you know, it's only set aside uh, for people. Like it's, so the economic value. So they decided, you know, that they wanted to do that. You know, there's some, you know, you look at this because the whole debate right now in Canada of urban reserves that there are in most cities now, uh, Regina, Calgary, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. There are in the east, there there are uh, there's first nations are able to acquire land usually within city limits or close to cities. There are even some agricultural plots out in Saskatchewan that are considered urban reserves that the, the first nation can convert into um, into reserve status. So th- it just it takes a long time uh, to do that. So it's it would be good if you know you had for some First Nations that uh, and you've seen this that they opt out to maybe to keep it as just outright owned by the band, not as a reserve. Interesting. So I wonder if
0: that model could apply on any nation, regardless of whether it's abutting a, a, a an urban center or not. I mean, could could you have a portion of the reserve that is turned over to fee simple ownership so that you can? solve some of the problems that we've been talking about or does it not does it only work in the context of of being close to an or embedded in an urban environment
1: well it's usually it's like new lands that the mm-hmm. band acquires now that it can make those kind of decisions uh now um there's a whole issue of like like uh, even like the converting first nation land which is collectively owned the, the certain title of actually being able to what would that require? Would it require just simple legislation to designate that? Would it require actually constitutional amendment in some way? Uh, they talked about that, but I guess, you know, when the federal government decided to propose the piece of legislation, which they never actually tabled in the House of Commons, that that they'd figured those things out, that there was a way uh, to do that so that a First Nation can kind of opt into um, a way that, you know, the, they receive their title all, uh, back to them collectively. So then they could choose to give it to individuals if they, so and keep things public. Like you look at any community in Canada, it's not all private land. It's, you know, parks and government, institutional lands, things that first nations would do the same thing.
0: Let's then talk uh, a bit about, we've been talking about the most successful reserves and entrepreneurship and economic development, property rights mechanisms, unlocking capital, corporations, own source revenue. I mean, it's all very exciting. But as you mentioned, that is only a small share of the overall number of nations. Now, I think in one of, I always thought there were, you, you tell me how many nations there, there are, because you'd mentioned that a hundred of them are now at a point where they have a, a substantial amount of own source nations. But my sense of it is that's probably only 15 to 20% of all the nations.
1: Am I, am I getting my numbers about right? No, you are. And actually, and all the time that I've written about Aboriginal issues for years, that's one of the issues that always comes up is the exact number of recognized First Nations you'd think would be completely nailed down. It's not. The number that I usually get is 630. So I could think that's the number of First Nations that send chiefs to the AFN, things like that, and the federal government recognizes. But it's one of those things that I remember over the years, you hear different numbers and you hear people say, so whether or not they're including certain ones or, um, you know, um, some first nations are kind of a, a conglomeration, conglomeration of, of first nations. There's one near, um, where was it in the middle of Alberta that I used to travel to that is kind of a couple of them together. They're kind of a,
0: that's probably Muska Cause we've got the yeah. Mo- Montana and yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So these guys, they're all together. So I had to go to speak to them individually get they've chief they've individual chief and council but they kind of saw themselves as a a conglomerate a kind of collective group
0: okay so if we're going to use 630 as officially recognized nations that send representatives to Assembly of First Nations having 100 is fantastic but it's sort of glaring that you see more mm-hmm. than 500 that are are struggling and i think that's probably part of the reason why we hear so many sad stories and i think everyone As as I mentioned, there's a a real desire to solve these problems, but my gosh, they're so difficult to solve. So let's see if we can address a few of them. Because at the very basic, one of the Mm -hmm. things that you would expect as a citizen of Canada is that you should be able to have access to clean drinking water. And it was a promise of the current Mm -hmm. government. But it's one of those issues where it seems like no matter how Many dollars, how much goodwill, how many promises? We still have boil water advisories and we still end up with some tragic cases. What's going on? Why can't we solve that most basic of problems?
1: From I'm not a like a, a water engineering expert, but what I've seen over the years of studying this issue is that it comes down to often like uh, number one, an issue of economies of scale at how much, um, what you need in order to have a, uh, a working. You know the population that you need to have a functioning water system, water treatment uh, system. I think a lot of times it's um, you have like a First Nation that doesn't have a uh, a recognized water operator. There's things like that. But one thing that keeps on coming up in the stuff that I've seen is um, you have it's a jurisdictional and a governance issue in the sense that um, in for most mainstream communities. Water is at the provincial level, whereas for First Nations, it's shared. The whole issue of water is shared among different government departments, like mm-hmm. Health Canada. That so you have like the they call them like um, you remember after Walkerton, the Walkerton tragedy, uh, there was certain level of multi-barrier ways to protect your water that were implemented at the provincial and territorial level. First Nations. Because they're under federal, don't have access to that. So it's kind of trying to bring those kind of standards of water testing and stuff to a First Nation. Um, so it's like it's it's one of those things that you know um, that that jurisdictional issue. That's you know there was a Safe uh, Drinking Water Act for First Nations that the Conservatives introduced. Um, so it created an enforcement mechanism. It created standards for testing, but the First Nations, what they argued. Uh, was uh, two problems with it was the the funding they wanted Mm -hmm. to have the funding with it and they wanted they argued that uh it put liability on the first nation on the band if something goes wrong so they didn't they didn't they weren't thrilled with that so um to me it's it's a governance issue it's an issue of uh like because of the, the the small size of first nations it becomes an issue where uh First Nations generally they need to come together like you have in Atlantic Canada there's actually like a water authority a First Nation water authority that all the bands the Mi'kmaq bands that are out here came together to share resources um, in order to uh, to provide that water so it, it it overcomes that problem of kind of the small population sizes if these First Nations don't want to necessarily go to the provincial level they don't want to do that they want to do their own thing so they have to overcome though the problem of smaller populations that are created with those kinds of things and they need to find out they need to figure out the uh, because what we see now we see we're still seeing a lot of the long-term advisories for some communities um, but for me it's like it's not a matter of just funding the government saying we're going to invest even the conservative government before invested billions in water wastewater management and they still were having some of these problems so i think that a lot of the problems need to be solved regionally first nations coming together signing regional agreements sharing infrastructure and and the government just coming down with specific regulations and then b- being able to s- support them like you know making sure water operators qualified ones are out in first nations um because that becomes a problem that if you have a very small First Nation, um, they're not some of them can't afford, they don't get someone that's the, the most qualified person and they um th- that becomes a problem. So you, you gotta it's a it's more complicated, I think, like then it the is complicated. Targets. Yeah. But
0: you know, it seems to me that in every small community we we've managed to solve these problems in non-Indigenous communities. So there should be there should be solutions. So thanks for explaining some of the governance issues. I wonder if if being able to provide technology to this problem will also solve the solving. She's talking about water operators. I've, I've been in some of these elaborate control rooms for all kinds of operations. And I, I wonder if we were to ensure that every community had good broadband reliable internet mm. access if some of these uh, issues could be monitored remotely and then you'd send in a troubleshooter if there was a problem I, w- I wonder i wonder how far we've gone in making sure that that first nations communities have this really essential of new utilities which is broadband access can you can you shed some light on how important that is
1: it's it's very very important and uh, you have a lot of the communities that that still don't have the broadband, but they share some of the problems, like say in Northern Saskatchewan particular, like where some of the private providers don't cover their areas that I think we need to look at, to me, because we do it for any other community. Broadband is like, a. it's almost like an equalization issue. It's like an issue that, you know, it's like the electrification on that level that everyone should have access to that. I think that, that should be a main priority for the government to bring in, you know, but for remote communities, indigenous and non-indigenous. And because I think that that could, like you said, that could solve some of the remote. Like I was thinking when you were speaking about that, like some things that I've written about a lot are people looking at the possibility of drone delivery for food, medical supplies, like especially during the pandemic, they started uh, experimenting with this, sending stuff up to First Nations at half the cost so we're not worrying about sending trucks up the whole winter road season, all that, all those issues. Um, you can shortcut that by just sending these unmanned drones. Uh, so they, they, ha- so it's not just you know science, science fiction. I guess now like they have, uh, there actually are some companies that have signed agreements with First Nations to send out drone deliveries. So they're still in the experimental, just looking at seeing, but just cutting down the cost of food. Uh, you know, and uh, and then but medical stuff, setting PPE at the time now as we're getting out of COVID, but other stuff, you know, like, um, you know, one of the issues is just getting people out if there's a medical issue. If you're out north of Fort McMurray, uh, getting you to Calgary or Edmonton for something or wherever, th- that's the big thing. You got to medevac you. They got to send you. So uh, maybe getting equipment there because a lot of these communities, a lot of them only have like nursing stations where they huh. have base, you know. They don't have a doctor all the time. They have maybe the nurses that can see people And if there's something serious they'll have to send you away. Well, right? think
0: think of how much easier it would be to deliver an equivalent level of public services if everyone had broadband internet access. I mean, yeah. it, it strikes me we're having this conversation, you're a, you're in Eastern Canada, I'm in Western Canada, and the reason we're able to do it is because we can connect with a with a reliable mm-hmm internet feed, there's there are many communities in the country that I wouldn't be able to do that with. And when you think about how you'd be able to provide, perhaps online education programs to fill in some of the gaps, if you're in school, you're missing a physics teacher up in a remote rural community, well, it's not a barrier if you can take physics online, or telehealth, if you've got an examination that needs to be done, if you can see a doctor and and communicate with them over this kind of medium, that solves some of those problems. If you're needing to troubleshoot anything in the community, uh, it it does seem to me that it could be transformative if that became one of the major pieces of infrastructure that everyone prioritized on on ensuring that that we were all interconnected.
1: Yeah. Like if we, like, you pointed out and it's true, location is one of the main issues. It's the, it's the elephant in the room for many communities that they realize where they are, but these things, technology can bridge that gap. Like, especially with, yeah, with telehealth, those kinds of things. And also like trades education, you have sometimes you can do the remote teaching with someone so you can have that. And then, so one of the issues, you know, that, uh, that I've seen come up with First Nations that are going out to work is a lot of them want to stay in their communities. They're not very eager to run off to one of the larger cities. There's a, there's a big culture shock if you're growing up in a certain way a certain tempo of life. So being able to not have, being able to train, get your certification through some kind of internet thing, that that's good. That's happening. So it's, it's very good.
0: I, and I love. it never occurred to me that drones could be a solution because I've done a previous conversation with Dr. Tom Flanagan talking about how it could be that building infrastructure to some of these rural remote communities mm-hmm. might be best led by resource development so that if you have a mining operation or forestry operation or oil and gas operation, uh, using that partnership to build out the infrastructure is one option, but using brand new technologies like, like drone delivery could also end up reducing the cost of having to build a huge amount yeah. of infrastructure. I hadn't considered that, that's that's brilliant. Yeah. Let's talk about another piece of infrastructure, because you've written on this as well. And it's the issue of housing, which is complicated. And I, I need to understand the First Nations perspective because I, if, if we anticipate, if non-Indigenous non-indig- communities expected that our municipal level of government would have to build a home for every one of us, we, we just know there's not enough money to do that yeah. for the entire population. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to conceive of that being a principal role of government, that it's government's job to build houses for people. And so here's the question is, what is it that we need to understand about why that is a government job? Or is there another way to get those houses built that might rely more on free enterprise principles? How do you see it?
1: Well, I think that... To a certain extent, just because of um, just because of uh, you know the cost of living, how how you know people live in those communities, not a lot of you know high affluent people. I think that some type of social model, government-led, some kind of housing will be a part of the mix. But I just definitely think that the government, you know, to a certain extent, needs to work with private sector trying to get these because. It's like, you, it's like what you're saying, like, um, I think Manny Jules I went, I once said that, you know, it'd be a couple hundred years before we catch up with our waiting list. If we're looking at, especially with uh, high population growth demographics on First Nations, they have a lot of families. That's one of the reasons why you see, you know, multi-generation people living in, in a house because of... Uh, you, usually the the basic house, you know, like the, the basic materials that they'll put in there and they're happy obviously to have a house, but you look at it, that it creates uh, those problems that the more people and all that. Um, so they definitely like a recognition that somehow um, the there has to be a partnership between, between the government, the local government. Um, I think that one of the big issues, and we mentioned, oh, I mentioned about governance, is that uh, um, the, the Institute for Governance, which is an Ottawa based think tank, wrote a paper on this that those are excellent years ago that looked at how housing on a lot of reserves, and I've seen it up front talking to people in reserves, it can become often a governance political problem. Mm-hmm. Where this is where you see issues where if you have the reserve government, the band, the chief and council administration have so much authority that they're able to allocate housing that, um, and it's, this is where in First Nation communities, it's almost inevitable in one sense that some kind of form of family-based decisions, because a lot of times you see a lot of communities are so small that it really is only like two or three families that have settled a couple hundred people, right? So it's, a ne- but you have those situations where um, like I was out in a first nation in Alberta years ago where I remember a uh, housing director out, uh, um, I knew pretty well. He, he said, uh, on a reserve out in Southern Alberta and he said, you know what? He says, he says, I'm gonna leave. He says like this job, I can't do this. He says, because he says there's too many times when I'm told that I have to give a house to someone because of how they voted and he says, I don't like that. He says, there are young families that are coming in with kids that are not being able to have houses because the politics of it. So you, but you do see a lot of work on ground, the ground. First nations are trying to f- stop this usually, you know, very, s- just kind of separating politics from administration. That's the main thing for a lot of first nations, getting that politics out so that they're allocating houses. And the other thing is just, um, um, with the Institute for Governance, this other study they mentioned was um, really making sure that housing, to a large extent, is run as a business. Because mm-hmm. you see a lot of times that housing is used as a way. You see, like um, sometimes they they stop collecting rent, they stop enforcing things like that. That you start having these situations where there's no money, so the the housing stock depletes because they don't enforce the rent. Some of it is, you know, because of poverty. It's you know, but some mm-hmm. of it. It's just, they're not, so it's things like that. And just, you know, having a, a, an independent housing authority, making sure that they're making these decisions for the right reasons. But I think um, like um, one way on reserves that they're trying to is uh, like they do have mer- ministerial guarantees for mortgages that they've had that for a while, that uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, Minister of Indigenous Affairs to the bank government will s- basically back the, the mortgage. I think they usually check the person, so that they try to make sure that they uh, um, have good uh, credit, a good you know financial history. So, but that still creates a problem with uh, the band and uh, is on the hook for some for those some of the houses. So, they 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 definitely need to to find some way to move on the on the on that issue. Um, Deal with the governance issues, get the politics out of it, and have the the private sector some kind of, even like not-for-profits organizations, you know, have kind of come in and said, we'll do this, we'll try to. But I think um, more individual ownership on reserves, like, um, like I said, the Nishka Nation, the example is those people, they, those who they voluntarily, they own their house, they own their land. So you do see a sense of from that, that, you know, and they feel like more pride of it in order mm-hmm. to maintain it, all those things, you know, improve it and all that stuff that I remember one lady up there saying, well, you know what, now that I own my house, she says, I feel like I want to do things more with it. She says before I didn't feel that way. Cause it's, it's like a band owned house. And that she said, a lot of people did, they started to have the, there's an attitude that like, well, if it, if it's, if it doesn't go, it doesn't go. And I'll, we'll get a new one. Right. So it changes the mentality. So I think that that's something that needs to. And I think it's a sensitive issue. Uh, I know, but I know First Nation people who live out on reserves would would know what I'm talking about and would kind of appreciate that that they see that right that they they get that sense that um, what that lack of ownership how what, what the effects it has on people.
0: You know, you know, as we're speaking, part of what I'm I'm thinking through is that in non-Indigenous cultures there, there's been Hundreds of years to develop mechanisms to establish property rights, transfer property. I mean, going back to the Magna Carta, I guess, in in um, in, in british um, the British tradition, and in some ways, we're we're really expediting the the development of all of these institutions in a pretty compressed period of time. And so maybe the way of thinking about First Nations reconciliations, it's really in stages is that, part of what's happening is that those nations that are able to develop the governance structures and the land management agreements and opt out of the Indian Act and establish their own crown corporations and start hiring um, indigenous workers and expand out the amount of own source revenue they have. And then that creates different property ownership structures so that the wealthier Mm -hmm. members of the band are able to own their own property. But then you still are having to deal with all of the Social issues that any any community is going to. I mean, we we have communities all 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 over the country, and especially in an urban environment where we still have a government run uh, housing corporations to provide low income housing. So so maybe that's it's just an evolution. Maybe the issues on First Nations is just that some communities are further advanced than others, and sadly there are so many communities that are not up to the the same level of wealth. Of non-indigenous communities, it just seems so stark. I think I think that's the the issue is that it seems like it's an overwhelming problem of poverty. But the way you're describing it is, there's a lot of incremental gains being made, and we have to also focus on the successes. Am I am I I'm getting a really optimistic sense from you? <laughs> I'm wondering if I'm overstating <laughs> if I'm overstating yeah, yes. the level of development.
1: No, like, and I I say you know I'm not just saying that. Like I, I it's just something that I like to focus on and not just as a way to say you know well let's just think of the positive not all, all the bad but because i do see since you know um i've seen all of these small changes that a lot of people that you would necessarily see on a daily basis like you know like a first nation signing its own land code and businesses i think i'm not going to blame the, the media in, the, in that sense except that you know. You, those kind of things don't necessarily make the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think um, I've 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 said that. And you know, one of the unfortunate things is like uh, you often see you only hear about First Nations sometimes in the right in the news when they're in conflict with something, like when there's protests or there's standoffs or there's some kind of protest or they're going to court or something like that. The all the small successes that that are happening that are happening incrementally um, are not, are not being noticed. Like, but you said, like, there's still the indicators are not where we want. There's a lot of communities that are still struggling waters, not being all these things. It's just, I think that there are a lot of tools uh, that, that they could use that are out there that other people, other first nations are using that other ones can see. Uh, so there's like a whole pool of best practices and things that could work. And I think even within first nations there's, like I said, there's 630 for all of them to get to know that, that these tools exist. That's the thing in itself. And, but I think with communication, the internet and stuff and all these conferences that they, they're able to share and you start to see that these things, uh, that there are ways out of the Indian act, there are ways that, um, but I do think that they it's too bad. You know, you started the conversation the whole, the whole call when we were talking just about how this is such a topic that is so sensitive and it's, it which is true. It's, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, a lot of these issues can quickly, um, people don't want to talk about them because they're afraid. They don't want to be, let's be honest. They don't want to be branded a racist. If they want to, um, say certain things, they want to question certain things. They don't want to target out First Nations and I think that that's you know they look at no one likes to um, you know say bad stuff about a community that's not doing well like people want to you know they want to find good reasons to so um, so it's it's one of those things but I I really do think that uh, you know we there are ways that we can approach these issues respectfully but honestly and identify problems and I think I've always said, like when I started out in this, that, you know, do I want to say the truth, what I think is the truth to the best of my ability, or do I just want to be liked? Mm -hmm. And I think that I've opted for the latter because it's yielded more. And I do think that there are a lot of people out in First Nation communities that see the same things. And see, it's like, it's, it's not just the activists and the indigenous scholars that are saying a lot of negative stuff, which we do see. It's a lot of people out, out the you know the entrepreneurs the business people the the chief and council that are doing a good job that you know that are very accountable those guys those are the you don't hear about them right and i just through my work you know in the past i've met a lot of them and i've seen that i've kind of been able to hear those things that a lot of so i always you know when i think about it i say i know there's a lot of good stories out there i know there's there's good people doing good stuff and there's a lot of tools and all that but it just needs to be more it needs to be heard. I think that, um, I do think that those First Nations need to maybe speak up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And you do you do hear them. Like you have now, like you have like uh, the Indian Resource Council, the First Nation Major Projects Coalition, organizations that are very dedicated to these kinds of things uh, that we're talking about, improving conditions that are much more, they're not willing to let other organizations speak for them. The AFN are not just, you know, union of BC chiefs that are come out against a lot of projects. They don't, they don't want them to hear. They want to people. And I think that's part of, you know, that, you know, as a community, they become much more um, assertive and uh, they've learned about their history and much more educated and all that. And we all have. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh, we definitely, we have, I, I yeah. guess when I'm thinking about, cause I want to get your take on how we, I I'm, I'm careful in how I choose my words because I don't want it to sound Um, like I'm diminishing the experience, but it's the, how do we move on from the residential school issues? Um, And maybe there is no moving on. Uh, Maybe we have to continue to acknowledge that it disrupted communities. It was uh, an assimilation strategy in a lot of cases we're hearing of the unmarked graves of children so children died there and didn't get repatriated mm-hmm. back to their home communities so there's a lot that we're we're dealing with from an emotional point of view and we often hear about the issues in communities being legacy from the residential schools experience mm-hmm. i would say I, I don't think i don't think i was ever formally instructed on that when i was going through school i i think i had to find out about the residential schools mm-hmm. when i got into politics because i I visited I think it was called Blue Quills and it had been a residential school that was now overtaken taken over by the First Nations community and operated mm-hmm. in a very positive way by them so it even my first introduction to a residential school issue was the them taking it was the community taking a negative and turning it into a positive and yet yeah. now we've just seen so many stories that have come out as a result of truth and reconciliation. and it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a it's a challenging issue to talk about because those of us today who didn't have anything to do with the policy didn't know about the policy didn't know the impact it was having. I, I think we're trying to figure out how how can we acknowledge it and yet still now build on the positive so that because c- the the task remains the same of ensuring mm-hmm. that everybody has access to opportunity, everyone has access to jobs, everyone has access to own source revenues, but there's this this barrier in the way of feeling like we haven't quite fully dealt with that issue yet. So what would be your guidance on it?
1: Well, it's, it's obviously, it's very, it's very emotive. And for many people, it's very personal. That's why I think many people just hear about it, especially and a lot of people either themselves or someone that they know had went to a school. Now the, um, so when I look at that issue, like the think tank I work at, like we had, we'd actually gotten to some hot water because we had mentioned some comments. So I think it's one of those uh, sensitive issues that I think um, um, we need to, the way that I look at the schools is it's one of the worst. You look at top-down experiments coming down and saying, we're gonna impose this, we're gonna decide. And um, I think what's important though, is I think like the truth and reconciliation, I think it went a little bit too far. And just in dis- and just kind of taking liberties and saying, well, because of this, we need to change fundamentally everything. I remember when once, you know, when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out, Trudeau said, "I'm going to implement all of them," and there were like ninety plus recommendations. And I said, "Really? You know, you're going to f- you're going to force the Pope to apologize? You know, you're going to you're going to do this? You're going to do that?" And I think, um, the I think for first Nations people, it's why they're very sensitive about education, wanting to be able to control their education system and not having something like that. I think th- the problem was, was that there was an assumption that, you know, like I was saying earlier that, you know, there's something wrong with you, you need to do this. Uh, you need to uh, assimilate to, to what, to my standards of what, you know, uh, Euro Canadian at the time and all that stuff that, that people saw at the time but i think that what's important is that i do find it gets too far when you know we start going into the genocidal language and we start making like and this is something that was not controversial before the the, the, the apology is that there was even if like uh, to we, the way i look at it is the the, pol- the policy of the schools was was tainted in the sense of what it did and obviously all the abuse that occurred, but that of course wasn't very, that wasn't universal. And I think a lot of people prior to the settlement, the apology did have much more of a mixed view of it. Mm. You you had some first nations like uh, Thompson highway and some others they uh, that said, okay, I, I wouldn't have gotten where I w- was, where I am now without these schools. They spoke very highly. But at the same time, they were very honest about what they all, what they saw. They saw abuse. A lot of people saw abuse. So it's like, it's always careful, um, on either way, one not to gloss over that what the policy of what these were, but at the same time, uh, you can't, you can't just present it as like, like even when I found that when the graves were being uncovered, that there was a rush and the media was not very critical about this that you know you look back at that time there were not just first nations there were a lot of places where if there were wooden crosses and different things that they would get lost and there would unmarked graves so that when people looking at that saying "You know it's it's evidence of mass murder or something like that you still hear that i see that on social Mm -hmm. media that's to me that's the the call that well we need to look into this we need to we need to if we need to exhume bodies we need to see what actually happened because uh the residential schools, uh the 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 TRC mentioned about the these unmarked graves. Like it's this is not something that is those who are familiar with their part are were saying, well, this is not new. We knew that these things, so now we have to deal with them, but we don't have but it's it's one of those things that this is one issue that uh, if you delve into it, it's you know, it's at your own peril, I think, because of the motive. Like you have some uh, you know. Uh, Senator Bayek, um, I can't remember what province, Ontario, uh, l- almost lost her job we're uh, saying stuff. Uh, I think she went too far in some ways, but in some ways, right. you know, she was trying to, I think it's, there's an attempt to try to balance the conversation a little bit, but even then it fails that because people look at it and say that, you know, you're an apologist for the system when you when you're not, you're just saying that, this is history. There's a little bit more nuance to this complexity to it. And the experience of the schools wasn't universal. Um, so like,
0: and at least today we now have the ability to create schools on site. And if we can get good internet access, provide the full range of programming on site. If the objective was, if you want to be charitable, to ensure that every first nation's child had access to education just the same way a non-indigenous was, I don't know what the uh, various options would have been a hundred years ago or 50 years ago. We have so many more options today. And at least we can now address that, that core value we have of of a a valued education, but do it in a way that doesn't take children away from families.
1: Yeah. Like for, what bothered people was that a deliberate taking away from communities as a way to sever those ties that that's what a lot of people looked at and said, well, that in itself was like, you know, you're trying to like, this was, I think um, the, I did a We did a research at the frontier center on a book on, on a uh, Treaty reconciliation commission. I contributed a chapter looking at the antecedents to the report, like all the history. And you see that, in the United States too, that's the industrial school model and boarding school that they started. That's the roots of the of the, of the residential school experience was this these idea. So someone, and it was the progressive idea, the reformist idea, the Democrat or whatever, or the liberal government and conservative here that thought that this was, this is the best way that we're gonna do it. It was universally believed that like in, Indians need to change. Like that. that's so it's like to me, that's why, you know, we get into all this issue where, you know, looking at Sir A as if he was the only one who was involved when, you know, there were so many people that are involved in the school. And it was universally believed generally that, um, you know, you know, uh, we needed to solve this Indian problem. Like that's the way people talked about it. We need Hmm. that. You know, they looked at it. So it's, you know, um, a lot of these people have mixed histories that, you know. The, uh, so yeah, I'm not very enthusiastic, you know, when they, you know.
0: I, I, it's, I'm glad we're able to have the conversation about it, because I think the the more we can understand the perspective of those who come from First Nations communities, the better will be common using the, the right language so that we don't cause offense. I think that's important, but also so that we can figure out what the next steps are, because I, I, I think there's so, so many positive stories to celebrate. Let, let's finish on the note of talking about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, because there's a lot of good in that too. Mm -hmm. And yet everyone is fixated on the free prior and informed Mm -hmm. consent passages. But in the context of what we've been discussing, it doesn't have to be a barrier to development. I'm, that's, the, that's the only thing I'm, I'm sort of pausing as I'm, I'm trying to analyze and see how this is going to be implemented. Uh, there are some First Nations leaders I've spoken with, Dale Swampy and Stephen Buffalo and others, who are actually concerned that the, this new declaration and the way it's being interpreted is now going to stop their ability to, to approve projects and to develop communities. And wouldn't that be an an awful outcome that just when communities are on the cusp of being able to self-actualize and self-govern and develop own source revenue, if we're passing legislation that's going to allow Mm -hmm. for the the voices of the anti-development group, combined with environmental activists who wanna stop development to prevent these to prevent First Nations communities from being able to achieve everything they want to achieve. I, I don't want to end on a hopeless note. I think that there's <laughs> the potential for us to work our way through this, since we do have a lot of of Supreme Court decisions and litigation around it. But but tell me if you have any concerns there, or do you, or do you think that once it is fully implemented, we'll find our way through?
1: Well, like I I agreed with those who said, like Stephen Buffalo and others that said, and a lot of developers said, well. If you're telling us that consent and you know a free prior informed consent is not a veto it's not this then why don't you just put that language in the law to put everyone's mind at rest but you have like um the like the 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 federal government giving these reassurances saying well it's all implied it's all this but we know that with legislation that that often um it gets uh like the way that people talk after after the law is is implemented will change. One thing that I've noticed is that there is a big misunderstanding uh, with when it came to undrip. Um, that kind of language, there's a lot of even among politicians, like Jugmeet Singh. I've written about this. There's a there's, they mix aspirational political language with actually what the law says on the ground. So, and I find that if people have an interpretation that undrip. The, the the this the, the consent provisions mean some kind of veto and all these and these kinds of things then i feel that like they're going to kind of um run with that and um and, and we know that in legislation that um language is important that's why in legislation that they go they define terms and things like that that's why i think it would be important like I, I and i agree like and i think i've come around a little bit that i think i do think that you know, UNDRIP, UNDRIP is definitely important. I think that most of the provisions like, you know, protecting your culture, autonomy, those kinds of things are good. I do think that it's important for First Nations in Canada to be connected to First Nations in other countries, like an aspirational thing with all, with the UNDRIP. The only thing I always had a problem, and I continue to have a problem with, is that it is um, um, whether, to, to what extent this is like a made in UN, made in Geneva way mm. of of imposing Uh, A thing on Canada, which has a which has its own constitutional provisions, a duty to consult framework, all these things like you like you were saying that if that could potentially create any type of problems for that. So that has the ironic effect of having a a thing of actually, you know, um, not allowing First Nations to have economic self-determination that a lot of some of these partnerships, some of these agreements. Like potentially could be questioned, could be litigated under the grounds of undrip. Now, I'm hoping that uh, there's another argument that says that when you say consent, in uh, when you're looking at that in, in in Canada's context, that it it really it means like um, like we're we're moving towards obtain consent. That like that's the that's the duty is to actually. Um, Kind of taking measures to try to get that consent. It's not actually saying you have to have 100% consent, mm-hmm. because that's the thing, is that uh, with the duty to consult for a project to proceed, it doesn't mean unanimity. It doesn't never had to be. It just means that you have to wherever First Nation rights or titles are being are being affected, especially adversely, the Crown has a has a has an obligation to to address that and to compensate if necessary. Uh, um, if, if the right is affected adversely to a a degree, then the, the uh, it does become consent, but those are rare. Like that's one thing that it, it can arise to the level. But most cases, if you can address it, uh, sign an agreement with the community, address these environmental concerns, you can proceed with projects.
0: And I, I guess, you know what, we'll pause it there because we might have to revisit that <laughs> a year or two or three from now and see yeah. how it ends up happening in, in practice. Because Give it a it couple of makes... years
1: and see how it's being implemented. Completely. Well, thank
0: you so much for the conversation today. I sure appreciate it. No problem.
1: It. No, it's been great. Thank you.
0: That's jo- that is uh, our guest, Joseph Cannell He is a senior research associate with the Frontier Center for Public Policy and a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Have a good day. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.